We're looking this evening at Article 36 of our Belgic Confession and its summary of what Scripture teaches us concerning the civil magistrate, the civil government. But first I'd like to read with you from Romans 13, the first seven verses. This is one of the clearest statements in Scripture concerning how the civil government relates to God and also to the people of God, how we should relate to the government. In seven verses, quite a lot is, is sandwiched, is packed. Paul writes in Romans 13, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister for, to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now, Article 36 of our Confession has a, a sort of a uniqueness to it. If you notice, it has a footnote, a fairly large footnote. And what that footnote does is it tells us that one paragraph of this article has been changed previously. And that up until this point, the article as you see it is what had been adopted. But that in 1958, the Synod of the Christian Reformed Church adopted a substitute paragraph for the second paragraph. That was therefore what they confessed, not what is written in the main text, but what is written in the second half of the footnote. But they left it in a footnote for this reason. They recognized that these are the three forms of unity, that they unite us with all of those who likewise confess the three forms of unity. And so they didn't put it into the main text until they had time to go and talk with their sister churches, to go and talk with other denominations that hold to the same confessions. And when the Psalter Hymnal was reprinted in 1976, it was reprinted without moving that up into the main text, and no one's quite sure why. But it was. Uh, when the United Reformed Churches dealt with this matter a couple years ago at Synod, it was recognized that that replacement paragraph is what we have long subscribed to. And so in our new uh, book of forms and prayers, as well as in our new uh, Trinity Psalter hymnal, you'll see that there's no footnote anymore. But that the second paragraph is now replaced with what was adopted in 1958, which was adopted because it was recognized that that was more faithful uh, to Scripture. So as we read this, I'm going to read the second paragraph as it is in the footnote, 
Because that's what we've agreed that, that's, that, that we uh, subscribe to. We believe that our gracious God, because of the, of the depravity of mankind, has appointed kings, princes, and magistrates, willing that the world should be governed by certain laws and policies, to the end that the dissoluteness of men might be restrained, and all things carried on among them with good order and decency. For this purpose he has invested the magistracy with the sword for the punishment of evildoers and for the protection of them that do well. And being called in this manner to contribute to the advancement of a society that is pleasing to God, the civil rulers have the task, in subjection to the law of God, while completely refraining from every tendency toward exercising absolute authority, and while functioning in the sphere entrusted to them and with the means belonging to them, to remove every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. In order that the word of God may have free course, the kingdom of Jesus Christ may make progress, and every anti-Christian power may be resisted. Moreover, it is the bounden duty of every one, of whatever state, quality, or condition he may be, to subject himself to the magistrates, to pay tribute, to show due honor and respect to them, and to obey them in all things which are not repugnant to the word of God, to supplicate for them in their prayers, that God may rule and guide them in all their ways, and that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and gravity." Wherefore, we detest the Anabaptists and other seditious people, and in general all those who reject the higher powers and magistrates and would subvert justice, introduce community of goods, and confound that decency and good order which God has established among men. Amen. Beloved servants of God in Christ, how important is your faith to your politics? Faith and politics, those are two subjects we're not supposed to talk about in public. But our confession of faith will have none of that. Because now, just as 500 years ago, the intersection between faith and politics was a minefield that the Christian, if he is to be faithful to God and to his word, must learn to carefully but faithfully walk. The questions then were not too far off from the questions today. Should my faith in Christ influence my interaction with the government? Does my confidence in God's word and my adherence to his law mean that I am bound to support certain political political positions and to reject others? For that matter, should a committed Christian even participate in politics? Or should we be hands-off? Is that just a, a matter of the world in which godly people should have no part? And those are just the questions of application. Some people question the wisdom of even allowing religious folks to be involved in the politics of a nation, whether Christian or Catholic, Muslim or Mormon. Some opine that faith needs to be left home, that it has no business in the voting booth, much less in the the legislative process. Others suggest that we have a conflict of interest, a competing allegiance, if you will, between our allegiance to the state and our allegiance to God. And still others, still others accuse those who take their faith seriously, which they denominate religious extremism, they accuse us of being the source of disharmony in our world. 
Faith and government, Christianity and state. We need to ask and we need to understand what relationship they ought to have to one another. Are they natural enemies or is there a way in which they can and should be bound together? Again, these are not new questions. Our forefathers faced these questions in the age of the Reformation and came up with the confession that we have before us. But generations before them wrestled with, them, with those questions as well. And that's what gave rise to Romans 13, as well as 1 Timothy 2 and a variety of other passages by which God answered the questions for us and gave us a template to follow that we might understand how we as God's people, how we as citizens of the kingdom of God ought to live among the, citizens, or among the kingdoms of men. And what God has told us and what our forefathers recognized is that it is God himself, the true God, our God, who establishes the governments of this world and that that must be our underlying presupposition, that must be the foundation on which we live in the midst of a civil society. God himself establishes the governments of our world. And that has some really important implications. The first of which is that God has established that government, those governments, in order to restrain men's wickedness. So we can be thankful for them. We must be thankful for them because God has established them to restrain man's wickedness. So that's our first point. The claim, however, that God establishes the governments of this world, we need to understand that that lies at the heart of Article 36. Our God is completely sovereign. He made all things. He controls all things. There is no aspect of the life of man, no aspect of the life of the universe in which he is not intimately involved. Think of our call to worship from Daniel 2. You remember the backstory to that, kids? Daniel is down in Babylon. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had had a dream. And he wants to know the meaning of that dream. He knows it's very important. But he also knows that his wise men are not always to be trusted. So he calls up all his wise men and he says, I want to know the meaning of the dream I had last night. But first of all, you need to tell me what the dream is so that I know I can trust your, trans your interpretation. And they all look at him and, and say, well, that's impossible. No king has ever asked of his counselors that which you are asking of us. We can't do it. We won't do it. It's impossible. And he essentially says, well, that shows that you're all frauds. You all need to die. And he sentences all of his wise men, all of his counselors to death because they're not able to do what he felt they should be able to do. Well, Daniel hears about that. And Daniel prays. He prays that God, who knows the hearts of all men, would reveal to him that which the king has asked. And God does. And so Daniel is able to tell the king both his dream and its interpretation. And when the king is about to praise him, Daniel says, No, it is God who possesses all wisdom and who gives understanding to his people. And it is God who is sovereign over all things, including this kingdom of Babylon. That means no, no king comes to power unless our God decrees it. And by the same token, no king is removed from power until our God decrees it. Now our view of government and how we respond to government has everything to do with whether we understand that fact. That's why Paul speaks so emphatically in Romans 13. He's writing to a church 
that lives in an extremely secular city. By secular, I don't mean non-religious. We often think about that in our, our culture. They say that the schools need to be secular, the government needs to be secular, and they speak as though that means that there is no religion there. That's a lie. It just means that the religion is not the true religion. It's a religion based on man. And the Roman Christians lived in a, a city where religion was based on man. And they were surrounded by those who were strongly opposed to the true religion. These folks, most of them thought Christianity was wrong and foolish. They had Nero at that time as their emperor, ensuring that Christians had no rights and were deeply scorned by those in power. And yet to Christians in such a place, Paul says there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist were appointed by God and therefore let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Our God is in control always and in every place. It makes no difference whether the person or group in power is, is good and righteous or wicked. It doesn't depend on whether they love God or hate Him or deny His very existence. God's sovereignty extends to all of the governments of the world at every age. That was true of the Roman Empire under Nero. It was true for the kings and noblemen of the Reformation era, whether Catholic or Protestant, whether good or evil. It was true in Hitler's Germany, Mussolini's Italy, Stalin's Russia. And likewise today, God is just as sovereign over Syria as he is over Israel. He's just as sovereign over North Korea and Iran as he is over the United States. He's just as sovereign over Nancy Pelosi as he is over President Trump. And whether they know or confess his sovereignty or remain utterly ignorant of it, God uses the governments and those who are involved in the government for his purpose. And we see the first of his purposes, the heart of his purposes, for the government in the way he empowers them to restrain man's wickedness. The fact that human society is filled with wickedness needs really no argument. All you have to do is look at the newspaper. Des Moines sees an average of 28 murders in any given year. Robberies about 364, roughly one per day. Assaults, 999 in the, or 991 in the average year. And that's just in Des Moines proper. In Pella, a couple was just arrested for neglecting and malnourishing their child, their infant child, because they were too busy getting high. We see the same kind of tragic news every day, in every city, in every part of the world. And it's not just the big stories, it's also in the lesser ways, the hateful words that are spoken on the playground, the backstabbing and self-serving politics of the modern workplace, the ease with which our own hearts give birth to hatred and greed and lust and adultery. Mankind is born into depravity. Our very hearts are sinful from the moment that we're conceived. And that sinfulness is pervasive. It affects every part of who we are. Our intellect as well as our emotions. Our private life as well as our public life. But note well, we are pervasively sinful, not absolutely sinful. We're not as bad as we could be. And that's an evidence of God's mercy. See, God in His mercy determined to restrain sin so man would not get so bad as to destroy himself. And He does that in a number of ways. For instance, He gives us a conscience 
inflict shame upon us when we sin so that we won't sin as much as we otherwise might. He uses social groups to exert peer pressure that restrains our sin. But the most obvious and effective means God has given to restrain sin is justice. From the very first sin, God promised just punishment. He promised it with Adam. He said that Adam, because of his sin, would suffer by being deprived of the good things of the garden, would suffer by being estranged from God, and in the end would suffer a physical death that would reflect the spiritual death he had already experienced. And likewise for his offspring. God exercised justice for Adam's sin, for Cain's sin, and so through the ages. But then came the age of Noah. In Noah's age, a change took place. In Genesis 9, we read, For your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now later on in the law of Moses, we find many case laws that explain for what sins the life of man must be required of him, and in what way that should happen. But what we are finding is that God is executing justice among man so as to restrain their sin. There would be a very physical and visible cost for the sin of man so as to restrain others from sinning. That's why we have the civil government. In this way, God has given man authority to restrain men's wickedness. Verses 3 and 4 of Romans 13 talks about how we can be free from fear of those in authority. We can be free of fear from those in authority if we recognize that the authority was given to them so as to protect and preserve those who do well while punishing and restraining those who do wickedly. And that punishment serves a few different purposes. Above all, it reflects the justice of God as a witness that one day we all will have to answer for all of our sins. And so it is, in fact, a sermon of sorts, reminding people that all of us must stand before the judge's bench, that all of us must answer for everything we've done and everything we've not done, everything we've spoken and everything we've desired. So the justice of the civil government stands as a testimony so that no one will be without excuse. or will have excuse. But it also serves, much like church discipline in fact, to show the sinner his sin that he might be led to repent. While at the same time, serving as a warning for those who have not yet sinned. That there is a cost to their sin. That they will suffer if they lead others to suffer. To protect the obedient, to punish the evildoer. That's why the civil government, above all else, that's why the civil government exists. It's not to feed those who can't feed themselves. It's not to create jobs and build up the economy. It's not to pick winners and losers in business. It's not for any of those things. It is to restrain wickedness that those who do well might, do, might continue to do well. And yet even that calling is a significant calling. Simply to protect those who do well requires much planning. It means that that there must be an armed force 
to protect against outside invaders, a police force to protect against evildoers at home, a means of training the police and the military, also oversight and coordination and accountability for those forces. And then when we look to the, the full exercise of justice against wickedness, not just stopping people in the midst of doing wrong, but now dealing with those who have done wrong, well now we need a legislature to formally codify what is right and what is wrong and how do we determine the difference. We need a judicial system to try those who've been found doing wrong. We need an executive system to oversee the police and the, the military in their seeking after the wrongdoers. And there must be some means of paying for it all. So to enable the government to carry out its calling to restrain wickedness, God has given the sword. Romans 13 verse 4 says the governing authority does not bear the sword in vain for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The sword refers to the authority God has given to use force on God's behalf. We see that force in action when our army attacks a group that has threatened our nation or when a police officer uses his, his weapons in order to stop someone, to restrain someone who's in the midst of doing something wrong. When the state holds someone against their will in jail, that also is the use of the sword. Now those are obvious uses of the sword, but there are less obvious ways as well. When a judge issues a warrant that says that the authorities can search your house for evidence of wrongdoing, that's an exercise of the sword. When the IRS sends a reminder to you that you really do need to send those taxes in or they're going to take your property, that's a use of the sword. When the state or city says that you can't build this business in your backyard because it would infringe on your neighbor's property rights, again, that is a use of the sword. They're all uses of power meant to preserve justice. And God has given that power of the sword to the government for our good. Now, is it sometimes abused? Absolutely. But even then, we need to remember... That God is in control also of those rulers who are wicked. That one day they will answer for their misuse of the power entrusted to them. But in the meantime, God will use even their misuse of their power. He will use even their misuse of the sword for the good of his people and the expansion of his kingdom. We might not understand how he's using it, but he is in fact using it for our good. However, our confession notes that the government's calling doesn't stop with the civil society. The governments of this world have a calling that relates not only to the secular, but also to the, the sacred, to the religious lives of God's people. And that leads to our second point, that God calls the governments to protect God's works. But we need to understand that carefully. Because it has been misunderstood and misused in many ways throughout the ages. It does not mean, when we say that, that God calls the government to protect God's works, that does not mean that the state is given authority greater than that of the church. It does not mean that the state is permitted to interfere in the life and the, the worship of the church. It does not mean either that the government is to support the work of the church. These are wrong uses of the sword as it relates to the church. But that doesn't mean that church and state have nothing to do with one another. The proper use of the state's authority is to surround the church with a wall of protection. Most broadly, the government must maintain a society that is decent and well-ordered. 
Because if God's people are spending all their time trying to survive, if God's people are in hiding, they can't go forth proclaiming the gospel. They can't go forth demonstrating the selfless love of Christ. They can't go out and do the works that God has called them to do. So the government must maintain peace so that we might live and serve God and worship God the way we're called to do. And the government has a a responsibility specifically toward the church. It has a calling to protect, to, to prevent enemies from hindering the church's mission. If someone would stop the church from exercising the worship we're called to exercise, the government has the calling to hinder them. If someone would limit the church's freedom to live and act in the way that God commands, the government has the calling to protect the church's right. The government is called to keep enemies of the faith from interfering with our calling from God. And that's important because Satan wants to undermine the church. Revelation 12 reminds us that Satan at the start longed to undermine the salvation that God had promised. And so he strove to devour the child that was to be born, the promised child who would bring salvation. But he was unable. The child was born and by his power Satan would be destroyed. But in the meantime he was cast down into the earth. And because the the son, because the Savior was taken out of his ability to destroy, he made war upon those who serve him. The dragon was enraged with the woman, which is the church. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who, give, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. He is making war with the church because he can't destroy the one who is defeating him. And that's us. The church with which Satan himself is making war. That's why Paul urged in 1 Timothy 2, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. He wants us to pray for our government because the government was given so that peace and order might be maintained for the sake of the church, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of bringing the word of life to mankind. We pray to preserve the church. And we, act, we understand that God preserves the church through the work of the magistrate. But what's our calling toward the government? The government is called to restrain wickedness. The government is called to protect the church and the work of God. What is our calling in response? Well, as we see that we're, in our third point, we're called to recognize their authority. We are commanded to recognize their authority. Now, that sounds easy. But that's far more extensive than it sounds. Our confession says that all people of every age, status, and situation must recognize the authority that God has given to the civil government. We must recognize their authority. And that's a significant thing. 
It's a, almost an all-encompassing thing. And it's a calling that we as God's people above all else must understand because when people of the world misunderstand the government, when people of the world rebel against the government, when people of the world scorn and mock the government, they're just doing what comes natural to them as rebels. They have rebelled against God. It only stands to reason they're going to rebel against all of the authorities God has established, right? But as those who have been reconciled to God, as those who have been made the sons and daughters of God, we ought to be setting the example of how to respond to those authorities that God our Father has established. Including when those authorities don't do what we think they should do. Recognizing that God is still sovereign over them, that God is still using them, we have to set the tone for how society should respond to those governments. And really it's a calling to submit ourselves to the government that God has set over us, thereby to submit to God. Listen again to Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. And then in verse 2 he says, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. And in verse 5 he says, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Paul teaches us the same lesson again in Titus 3. And Peter in 1 Peter 2, as we read not terribly long ago, says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So what is that submission to the government? What does that look like? Well, above all else, it involves giving that which is owed. In verse 7, of Romans 13, Paul says, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And that is what we must do. If the tax laws change, and even more of your hard-earned income is demanded, as Christians we are called to pay it promptly, knowing that the government is given for our good. Yes, they will waste some of our money. And yes, they will use some of our money on things that we find to be absolutely foolish and or abhorrent. But they have to answer for that. We have to answer for whether we have submitted to the government God has put over us. That doesn't mean that we can't lobby them to change the tax laws. That doesn't mean that we can't urge our legislators to use the tax money more wisely. But it does mean that when April 15 comes around, our check has already been in the mail and we have the receipt from the mailing. And not only do we do it, but we do it joyfully. Recognizing that all we have and all that we need comes from the Lord. And that He has put us in this place at this time and therefore He will ensure that we have enough, first of all, to show our faith in Him through our tithing, and secondly, to show our thanks for the government He's given by paying dutifully the taxes that are owed. We must pay our taxes. We must pay also our respect to the state. Now that's not an obligation we fulfill just by saluting the flag and standing when the, when the uh, star-spangled banner is played. We show our respect for the government in the way that we speak of our leaders. We need to honor our legislators, our judges, our president in the tone of voice that we use. 
in the way that we respond to rumors about them, in the nicknames we use or decline to use about them. That's hard. Especially when we're talking about the governing officials whom we deeply disagree with. I'm guilty. How easily we repeat the slurs that the unbelievers use. And we're so quick to justify it. But when we dishonor those governing authorities, we dishonor God who gave them to us. And yes, I know that some of the decisions they make are absolutely, unequivocally ungodly. Yep. And yes, I know that even confessionally, we stand against some of what some of them are proposing. We detest the seditious people who... Not only those who reject higher powers and magistrates and subvert justice, but also those who introduce community of goods. That's now known as socialism. We abhor that. We hate it because it's introducing a false god into government. But even when our governors introduce that blasphemy of government, while we should loudly and unreservedly oppose what they're pursuing, we must honor them as those whom God has put in that position. You want to challenge yourself to do that? You make a list of your legislators. The state legislators, the federal legislators, also the city school boards, the county commissioners. You make yourself a list. And you write them on a calendar. One name per day, and you resolve to include that legislator or executive, include the governor, include the president, include the mayor. And you pray for that governing official every given day. And at least once a year, write a note to each one of them and tell them that you're praying for them, that you recognize them as God's minister, and that you're asking God to give them the wisdom and the courage to do that which is right. That's hard. But you know what's even harder than doing that? Dishonoring them after you have done that. We need to respect and honor those whom God has set over us, and we need to obey them. All things lawful that they command us to do, we must do cheerfully. Now, of course, God is the ultimate authority. So if they command that which would conflict with what God has commanded, as Peter said in Acts 5, we ought to obey God rather than men. But until they do oppose what God commands, we must do what they call us to do. Well, what if they do what is tyranny? Well, then we should encourage those who are also magistrates but maybe are lesser magistrates. If the federal government does that which is tyrannical, we need to encourage the state government to do what is right. Because God has raised them up as an authority and it is their calling as authorities to restrain the wickedness of the, the higher authorities. So with abortion, the federal government has ruled that there is an absolute right to abortion. We need to encourage our state authorities to nullify that ungodly and illegitimate decision and say we know what the Supreme Court has said and we don't believe that it's either godly, right, or constitutional and we will not abide by it. They have the right to do that as the lesser magistrate. But we as individuals do not. 
So we must obey them insofar as they do not lead us to disobey God. And we should encourage them to do that which is right, to follow after God. But the most important thing we need to do with regard to our government, regard to those authorities over us, and I've already mentioned it, is we must pray. You know, one of the most encouraging ministries I've seen in the public sphere for a while began in this state where ministers from throughout the state are encouraged to go to the legislature during its time in session and meet with legislators one-on-one and pray for them. Because as we pray for them, we're not, we're not to lobby anything. And the intent is not to pass any particular legislation, simply to pray for their well-being, for their wisdom, for their insight, for, for their courage to do what is right. Because as we do that, we remind them they are magistrates under God. They are called and equipped by God and they are accountable to God. And we show them that, they, that we as the church are not opposed to them. In fact, we're thankful for them. And that should not be something that only the ministers are doing and it should not be something that's happening only with the legislature. All of our governing officials need to be prayed for and we all need to do it as families, as individuals, as a church. We must be praying that God would bless those whom He has set over us. Now just to be clear, this view of our responsibility toward the government puts us at odds with some religious groups. Our Confession mentions the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists during the age of the Reformation, they got a name for being anti-government. Some opposed nonviolent opposition to governments that they regarded as ungodly. Others uh, regarded it to be most wise to simply be separated from the government. They refused to serve in any governmental capacity or to fight for the armies. We find the descendants of them among the Amish and the Hutterites. And that was seen as rebellion in the age of the Reformation, which in some sense it was. Problem was, in that age, there wasn't a whole lot of distinction drawn among Protestants. And so the the Reformed were lumped in with the Anabaptists. And so our forefathers made it very clear to the governing authorities, that is not us. We do not oppose and we do not reject the government. We recognize that the government is God's agent for our good. And so, brothers and sisters, must we do. There are many in our age who would subvert and rebel against the authority of our government. Children, young people, hear this. There are groups on college campuses all over this nation that say, we need to resist. And as Christians, we need to say, no. We need to pray. Certainly lobby, encourage, write letters, but above all else, pray and honor and love those whom God has set over us because as we honor them, brothers and sisters, we honor God. And as we pray for them, we lead them to be blessed. And God, who was able to turn the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, kids, you remember the story? Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of the greatest kingdom of all the earth in his time, whom God brought low and made to graze like a cow for a season, 
living out in the midst of the fields with the dew falling on his head until finally God allowed him to return to his senses and return to his palace. And when he did, deeply humbled and shamed before all the world, Nebuchadnezzar confessed that there is one true God and he is the God of Israel. He is the God of the Christians. He is the God of Christ. If he could humble Nebuchadnezzar to confess the true God and to call people from all over the world to worship him, he can humble any one of our authorities. But we must pray. We must ask God to use them. We must ask the Lord to intervene. And brothers and sisters, he will. But we, we must not devolve to the world's methods. We must pray. God himself establishes the governments of our world. He empowers them to restrain man's wickedness. He calls them to protect God's works. And he commands us to recognize their authority. Let us do so gratefully, eagerly, and with joy. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, thank you. Thank you for giving us the authorities you've set over us. Lord, you know that we often have grave concerns with the, the ways that our legislators and judges and executives act. But Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the times that we have spoken ill of them and have dishonored them. And we pray that you would help us to, to honor and respect them as agents in your hand. And we pray that you would work in their hearts that they might pursue that which you delight in, that which honors you and follows after your will. And Father, we pray that as you work in them, you yourself might receive all the glory for doing what mere man could never do. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.